The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World, Episode 23 The Kievan Rose. The story of the Kievan Rus is the story of a migration of peoples probably of Scandinavian origin, settling the lands in and around the modern city of Kiev in Ukraine. But of course there was activity in this area before the arrival of the Scandinavian migrants, and so it would be correct for us to discuss exactly what was going on there. You may recall that when we originally spoke of the Scythians, we always have to be very careful to state exactly what we are referring to. The Scythians were a group of tribal nomads who occupied the Pontic-Caspian steppe in the times of classical antiquity. But the term Scythian can also refer to a wider culture of peoples who occupied Eurasian steppelands throughout the first millennium BCE. One group of peoples who lived to the west of the Scythian tribes, but who are referred to as being linked to Scythian culture, are the Cimmerians, who occupied lands in and around the Dnieper River. The Cimmerians and the Scythians are recorded as aggressors towards the northern frontiers of the Assyrian Empire during the first half of the first millennium BCE, which didn't do the Assyrians any favours when it came to defending their territory against the advances of the Medes and the Babylonians. The Cimmerians disappear from history around the middle of the first millennium BCE, but the Scythian peoples remained as apparent as ever, possibly displacing the Cimmerians around the lands of the Dnieper. The Scythians would then develop their culture in the lands to the north of the Black Sea and start to create settlements and diplomatic relations with their neighbours such as the ancient Greeks. Scythians would travel to Greece in order to receive education and to work, in order to take the benefits back to their own society. But they would become a target of the Macedonians under their king Philip II. It's possible that this turn of events in Greece served to isolate the Scythians and we find that records of them become sparse and we can consider their heyday had been and gone. 
we find that these lands became interesting to a number of migrants over the following centuries. The Sarmatians were another step culture of Iranian stock who settled the lands of the modern country of Ukraine towards the end of the first millennium BCE and they can be considered as among the many barbarian tribes of the Romans. Their lands were pressurised by the migration of Goths, a Germanic peoples from northern Europe, to the banks of the Black Sea during the years of the Roman Empire. When the Huns migrated westwards into Sarmatian lands, the Sarmatians found themselves sandwiched and then assimilated into Hunnic ruled territory. The Huns continued their movement westwards into the middle of Europe where they would do battle with the Romans. By the end of the 5th century, the Huns lost their power and influence and disappeared somewhat into obscurity, leaving the former Scythian lands without a firm political identity. Now, if we go right back to the start again and speak of the Scythian cultures, we are talking primarily about the cultures who lived around the lower Dnieper River Valley and the lands to the east and west of this on the northern banks of the Black Sea. The Dnieper River empties into the Black Sea and as we travel upriver, we would today encounter the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev before travelling onwards to the modern country of Belarus. And linguists who give great credence to the Proto-Indo-European language theory which we studied back in Volume 2 suggest that we can point to this area of the Upper Dnieper River as an area where we would discover some of the earliest Slavic language speakers. The Vistula River is just to the west of the Dnieper River, but it flows northwards into the Baltic Sea. Roman documents help us to identify this area as the origin of the Goths before their migration southwards to the banks of the Black Sea. But if we go beyond the Vistula, then the Romans spoke of a peoples called the Veneti, who were culturally and linguistically distinct from the Germanic Goths and the Sarmatians. Historians of a later time suggest that the Veneti were early Slavs. Slavs We haven't really given the Slavs a lot of attention during this podcast series, but now is a good time to try to tie some loose ends together and describe these people of hazy origin that have become a major part of European ethnicity. Linguistic studies can often give us pointers to origins and migrations of peoples where archaeological or historical records are absent. Slavic language speakers have been determined to be part of the Indo-European language groups and a part of the Balto-Slavic language branch. Baltic languages such as Lithuanian and Latvian diverged from Slavic languages, leaving Slavic languages 
to develop independently. Our first historical references to Slavic speakers come from Roman sources, such as when they reference the Veneti, as mentioned previously. And it appears that they were able to exploit a vacated area of lands created by the westward migration of the Huns into Central Europe, which also forced Germanic tribes westward out of the lands of the Dnieper and Dniester rivers, which had been previously occupied by the Goths. In the wake of the Hunnic era, the Byzantine Empire established its own identity, and Byzantine scribes recognised Slavic speakers occupying lands to their north. Slavic speakers appear to have diverged into three distinct groups, leading into the 7th century where distinctions appear to be recognised by neighbouring European peoples. Germanic speakers of Central Europe recognised a migration of peoples into the eastern lands of the modern country of Germany, who were referred to as the Vens, and have since been distinguished as the West Slavs and the ancestors to the modern Poles, Czechs and Slovaks. The Byzantines recognised two other ethnic groups who have come to be linguistically linked to the Wends. One group were the Scloveni, who were recognised during the era of the Emperor Justinian, who may have been forced southwards onto the northern frontiers of the Byzantine Empire by the westward migrations of the Avars, Bulgars and Magyars during the later half of the first millennium. These peoples have been distinguished as the South Slavs and they were ancestral to many of today's former Yugoslavian states and to the Bulgarians. The remaining Slavic speakers who were not forced deeper into European territories are the ones who interest us today and they were recognised as the Antes people by the Byzantines and have since been distinguished as the East Slavs and are ancestral to today's Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians. These East Slavs are believed to have existed in these areas between the lands of the Upper Vistula and the Upper Dnieper for many centuries before the supposed migrations of Scandinavians from the north, as it is speculated by historians that they interacted with all of the cultures passing through and around this area during the entire first millennium, including the Scythians, the Sarmatians, Greek-speaking Romans, the Goths and the Huns. Varangians. It seems possible that Scandinavians with the typical Viking mentality travelled eastwards into the extremities of the Baltic Sea and migrated southwards along the lands and rivers of Eastern Europe and Western Russia. The opportunities of the lands must have been very attractive to these Viking raiders who were quickly able to make contact with the large empires of the Romans and the Arabs to the south of the Black Sea. And this was during the first half of the 9th century. The lands between Lake Ladoga in the north and the Black Sea in the south 
were occupied generally by East Slavs and the Vikings who encountered them seemed to take the upper hand. This may be because the Viking nature was to terrorise and steal from others more readily than the agricultural Slavs who were familiar with creating their own resource from the land as opposed to taking the resources of others. We have discovered that the Vikings were not the medieval Neanderthals that some are attracted into making them out to be. They were familiar with their neighbours and how to negotiate with them for their own benefit and even though they may not have been as sedentary and self-sufficient as other European cultures, they were certainly very capable of trade and diplomacy with whomever they encountered. The Slavs were just unfortunately a simple group of tribes who were not centrally governed and this enabled the Vikings to plunder without consequence and capture small populations for onward trade as slaves. It is absolutely no coincidence that the words Slav and slave are almost the same. This is exactly where the word slave derives from. Such was the impact of what the Vikings did to them, and how societies such as the Byzantines benefited from these exchanges. As well as slaves, these Vikings appear to have traded in furs captured from animals from the forests of the north and traded for the coins of the Arabs of the south, as discovered in grave sites all the way back in Sweden. The Vikings referenced in Eastern scripts are specifically referred to as the Swedes, which distinguishes them from the Norwegians and the Danes that we are familiar with seeing in Western European references to the Vikings. It is important to remain open-minded when reading historical sources and particularly those written in the generations following the events due to the fact that they may seek to embellish events to shine a positive light on a particular ethnicity. Indiscretions between one source and another can cast a shadow of doubt on some of what we are reading so it can be complacent to regard anything as canon. The primary chronicle is a history of the people called the Rus and was written in the 12th century. Some of its detail differs from that of other sources, such as those written about the Rus by the Byzantines, so we have to proceed with a lot of caution. The primary chronicle tells us that the East Slav tribes approached Swedish Vikings and requested that the Swedes become their overlords in order to prevent further infighting between Eslav and Finn tribes who occupied the lands in question. Personally, I find this hard to process, but it is what is written nonetheless. The man who stepped forward to be the first ruler was called Rurik of Ladoga, and he ruled over these peoples and established his power base at the city of Novgorod, which is now Veliki Novgorod, in northwest Russia and stands on the Volkhov River, which empties into Lake Ladoga. We also mentioned the Finns, and these were people who may have occupied lands around the Volga River, and they are ancestral of the modern Finnish and Estonian peoples and may likely share a distant ancestral link with Hungarians as recognised by linguists. 
The Byzantines named these peoples of Viking origin the Varangians. These Varangians very quickly started to establish trade routes between the Byzantines and the Muslims in the south, with the Baltic waterways of the north creating a highly significant and effective movement of goods during the 9th century that was better than the alternative and rather more complicated route via the great density of powers that were struggling to establish their respective statuses and relationships with each other in Central Europe. The descendants of Rurik are known as the Rurikids, and they would become the royal ruling dynasty of many subsequent nation-states of this geographical area, right up until the 17th century and the Tsardom of Russia, and the state that took its name from the Rus. The story of the legend of Rurik, offering to be the saviour of the Slavic tribes, can come across as a bit far-fetched, so the alternative historian view is that the Varangians simply established their own area of rule in the Eurasian steppe and may have referred to it as a Khaganate, which is a Turkic term somewhat equivalent to a kingdom or an empire. The Rus's relationship with Constantinople was not smooth, with records of Rus raids and sieges on the city by and large unsuccessful. Certainly one attack was conducted by the successor of Rurik, whose name was Alek, and it appears that it would be Alek who would expand the Rus realm to incorporate lands further south and including the city of Kiev on the Dnieper River, which allowed ease of access to the Black Sea and the fruitful trading opportunities associated with it. We can view this as the beginning of the state called the Kievan Rus. This is likely to have happened in the second half of the 9th century, although there are discrepancies between all of the sources available which can cause us to question the exact details. According to legend, the city of Kiev was established by three East Slavic brothers in the early medieval period, although archaeology suggests a much older settlement. The conquest of Kiev really set things up for the future. The people developed a new national identity based on this foundation which we can suggest to be the origins of the Russian peoples as well as the Belarusians and also the Ukrainians who find their modern capital city at Kiev. The onset of agriculture took over from the much more mobile lifestyles of the Vikings, but the trade network only became wealthier and more widespread as the Kievan Rus linked the Arab and Turkic Caliphates and Khaganates and the Byzantine Empire with the emerging Scandinavian kingdoms of the north. The term Varangian was given to the Norse people by the Byzantines. Before the Christianisation and introduction of Latin to the Norse realms, runic scripts were used that were based on alphabetic principles as opposed to syllabic, but were common to Germanic language speakers before Latinisation. We can find many inscribed runestones concentrated in the lands of the modern country of Sweden that tell us of voyages from the Baltic to a mysterious land called Gardariki, which has since been determined by some to actually be the Rose State. 
from their new capital city at Kiev, the Kievan Rus established a wealthy state based on an extensive trade network reaching out to the lucrative Muslim cities of Baghdad and Alexandria. Christianization. Kievan Rus had started out as a nation of pagan believers due to the predominantly Slavic and Norse cultures which had originally been pagan during the 9th century. As is often the nature of medieval nation-states, each death of a monarch came with a succession crisis. During the 10th century, a young descendant of Rurik called Vladimir became the Prince of Novgorod. But he had to battle with his brothers to eventually become the Grand Prince of Kiev and therefore the monarch of the Kievan Rus. His realm stretched from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, but Vladimir clearly believed that he would need something more in order to cement his position as the monarch and cement the Kievan Rus as a viable nation on the international map. So he turned his attention to monotheistic religion. Vladimir's attitude to religion is documented in such a way as something that was not a divine choice, but a political one. It may of course be the case that for many medieval monarchs, the conversion to religion is portrayed as a spiritual rebirth due to a divine revelation or something similar. The reality is that there would have been much more fundamental motives at play, with the wealth and power of the individuals accepting religious conversion often being increased, and this cannot be discounted as a primary motivation. Vladimir considered Islam, but rejected it with one reason being that Islam condemned the consumption of alcohol, which is a way of life that would never suit the Kievan Rus of all people. Vladimir also considered Judaism, but rejected it because he viewed it as a weakened religion by the success of its Abrahamic rivals, with it now being the religion with the least influence within the holy city of Jerusalem. Vladimir did consider Roman Catholicism, but saw it as unattractive and bland. So Vladimir looked favourably on the orthodox Christian practices of the Byzantines after his emissaries were treated well on their arrival in Constantinople. The reality was that the Byzantines were rising in stock due to their Macedonian renaissance and they were the strongest ally that the Kievan Rus could look towards in the later decades of the 10th century. And by striking up a religious connection with the Byzantines, Vladimir could bolster his position on an international scale. Constantinople was able to benefit from its relationship with the Rus The Rus were highly mobile and successful traders and fearsome warriors, and they would make a worthy ally to the Byzantines, especially with the growing power and influence of Baghdad rivalling the global status of Constantinople. The Byzantine emperor was one Basil II, known to history as Basil the Bulgar Slayer due to his military successes in the later years of his reign in the Balkans. Basil allowed Vladimir to marry his sister, Anna, 
in a controversial move that could have been viewed upon as the emperor's sister marrying beneath her status. However, Vladimir was baptised and led his people to mass baptism, which would help to validate the marriage in the eyes of the Byzantines and convert the nation of Kievan Rus to Christianity. Even though Vladimir reportedly contemplated different religions before turning to Orthodox Christianity, it could have also been in honour of his own grandmother that he made this choice. Vladimir's grandmother was Olga of Kiev, and she was a considerable woman. Olga was a Varangian woman and the wife of Igor the Old. Igor the Old was the son of Rurik, the man who started the Rurikid dynasty, as we discussed earlier in the episode. The Rurikids had already taken Kiev by the time Igor had become the Grand Prince, possibly in the year 912. Igor reigned until 945, when he was killed by an East Slavic tribe called the Drevlians, who took umbrage to Igor's demand for too much tribute. It could be his wife, Olga, who would avenge the murder of her husband, using cunning and deceit to fool Drevlians into thinking that she was willing to negotiate with them, when in actual fact she was plotting to destroy them. The primary chronicle tells us that at one point, when the Drevlians were besieged in the city of Iskorostenya, the modern Ukrainian city of Korostenya, that Olga demanded that every household give her three pigeons and three sparrows, and she would spare the city. The Drevlians met her demand and provided the birds, but Olga would attach pieces of sulphur to each bird before setting the sulphur alight and sending the birds back to their nests in the city, where the sulphur would set the city ablaze. Despite Olga having the merciless blood of the Vikings running through her veins, she would also govern the Kievan Rus with incredible competence, making legal reforms and defending her territories from foreign invasion, including a siege of Kiev from the Pecheneg Turks coming from the south. The other significant event of her life was her conversion to Christianity following her visit to Constantinople as a guest at the court of Emperor Constantine VII. Her conversion has led her to be venerated in both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church, and her remains were interred at the Church of the Tithes. But this was actually a reburial because the construction of the Church of the Tithes was not carried out until her grandson, Vladimir the Great, ordered it to be done. The Church of the Tithes was the first stone-built church to be erected in the city of Kiev. When Christianity reached predominantly Slavic populations, a script had to be devised to suit the Slavic languages, and although the Latin alphabet was typical in the West and the Greek alphabet in the East, it was felt that neither was wholly suitable for the Slavic languages, 
and so a new glagotic alphabet was created to write the new standardised Old Church Slavonic language used for religious works translated for Slavic peoples. The glagotic alphabet was the precursor to the modern Cyrillic alphabet, which has become the standard alphabet in a number of modern states, and notably from the Kievan Rus to modern Belarus, Russia and Ukraine. And we can also see it in use in Bulgaria due to the early medieval Bulgarian migration into the lands of the South Slavs, making early Bulgaria a predominantly Slavic-speaking nation, like the Kievan Rus. Peak and Decline By the end of the reign of Vladimir the Great in the year 1015, the Kievan Rus was very much a political state as established as any in Europe. It had come a long way from the initial subjugation of barbarian tribes who had lived in the region. The influence of the Byzantines could be seen in the artistic styles incorporated into the religious buildings of the Rus. We can also find aspects of Byzantine law being utilised within the Rus state also. We shouldn't believe that the relationship between Constantinople and Kiev was always in a healthy state as we can often see evidence of Rus raids and sieges. During the first half of the 11th century, Kievan Rus was being ruled by Yaroslav the Wise. Yaroslav was a son of Vladimir the Great, but did not become the monarch until a succession crisis played out between him and his siblings, leaving him to overthrow his brother Sviatopolk and take control of the city of Kiev. Yaroslav continued the healthy development of the state with plenty of cultural and administrative developments which continued the good work of his notable predecessors such as Igor, Olgar and Vladimir. Yaroslav would invest heavily in the construction of monasteries and churches and he would also take effective military action in the form of successful campaigns against the Pechenegs in the south, the Poles, in the west and the Baltic tribes in the north. Yaroslav looked to strengthen diplomatic ties also. One of his daughters, Elisiv, was married to Harald Hadrada, the king of Norway. Another of his daughters, Anastasia, was married to Andrew the White, king of Hungary. And yet another of his daughters, Anna, was married to King Henry I of France. This built up quite an important network of royal house connections for the Rus. This is a glowing account of Yaroslav the Wise. The one big blemish on this account was when he sent his son Vladimir of Novgorod with a fleet to raid Constantinople. The Byzantines destroyed the Rose fleet and was subjected to the Greek fire method of defence that had served the Byzantines so well during previous attempts by other invaders to attack Constantinople. Greek fire was an incendiary weapon which was likely based on naphtha to create a combustible fluid which would set helpless ships ablaze. 
Also, there was no succession plan following Yaroslav's death in 1054. Kiev and the Rus descended into a bitter civil war which fractured the nation and it was never quite the same again. The civil war caused a lack of centralisation and the lack of centralisation caused local governors to prioritise their own affairs with further decentralisation of the state. The lack of cohesiveness disrupted a lot of the fabric of the nation, including the upkeep of trade relationships, agriculture and the defence of Kiev and Rus lands from comparative barbarians of the steppe. The very important principality of Novgorod, which had been the origin of many of the grand princes of Kiev, decided to become its own republic during the 12th century, breaking away from an already fragmented Kievan Rus. The Principality of Rostov Sustal would come under the direction of a Grand Duke called Andrei Bogolubsky in 1157, and as the Grand Duke of what would then be called the Grand Duchy of Vladimir Sustal, he would actually be involved in the attacks of the city of Kiev before eventually successfully sacking the city in the year 1169. This principality would eventually become the Grand Duchy of Moscow and the nucleus of what would go on to become Russia itself. This action was quite significant in demonstrating that Kievan Rus was now broken. The end of medieval Kievan Rus actually came in the 13th century when the Mongol Golden Horde and Mongolian peoples migrating westward on the steppe fearlessly attacked the lands of the Kievan Rus before launching a full-scale invasion that would successfully bring the remaining Rus principalities under the Mongol yoke. This was the actual end of Kievan Rus. Thank you very much for listening to the History of the World podcast episode on the Kievan Rus. And uh, we have come round in a huge circle now, haven't we? Since uh, the earliest episodes, which centred around um, famous cities of the Middle East and and the Eastern Mediterranean, such as Constantinople and Baghdad, uh, these were the cities that were really featured more in the first dozen episodes of this volume. And now we've sort of gone round in a complete circle and, and completed the circle. Um, so now all that really remains for us to do is to sort of go back and uh, embellish some of the episodes um, of of medieval, of early medieval history, such as when the Vikings invaded the British Isles. So we'll be looking at the the Danes in Great Britain. We'll be looking at the Norse in Ireland, um, and um, so there's still a lot to cover before we sort of move on into some of the uh, the key battles of later medieval periods and the Crusades, of course. So there's a lot still to come uh, when we start looking at the centuries um, of the second millennium. Um, yeah, of course, always, as always, I'm venturing into pronunciations that I have very little knowledge of, um, such as uh, the Kievan Rus, of course, Kiev is very much in the news and um, it used to always be called Kiev in, in English-speaking countries and, and you notice now on, on news broadcasts that 
Um, you know, certainly in England, um, there's a concerted effort to call the city Kiev. Um, I think it's a bit more um, correct to call it Kiev. Um, so that there's sort of somewhat of a, a, a syllabary sort of d distinction between the, the first Y and the second I. Um, and um, so, but I mean, you know, it's neither wrong or right to pronounce it either way, I think, you know. And also the, the word Dros is, is much more in line with the Slavonic um, or the old Slavonic way of, of saying uh, Rus, which so you could get away in England of calling... Uh, calling the culture the Kievan Rus, and it's probably a lot more well heard of as being called the Kievan Rus. But I've chosen to call them the Kievan Rus to be a bit more honourable to the local dialects. So, um, but tell me what you think. I mean, I may be completely um, off kilter there with that um, assumption that that should be the right way to pronounce it for the sake of this production. But I'm always interested in your thoughts and opinions about the pronunciations and often native speakers do get in touch with me to maybe point me in the right direction and I always appreciate it. But what a fascinating episode and um, certainly, of course, um, a very significant part of the world at the moment. If you're listening to this podcast in a contemporary fashion, i.e. you're not listening to it years after it was originally published, you'll know full well of the um, anxiety of that area of the world now. And certainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought this area um, to light. But I think the beauty of today's episode is that we can see that the, the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Belarusians are historically linked um, through the Kievan Rus. And um, I think, um, you know, we, it serves us well to remember that, that there's a commonness about the peoples of this land, that they evolved from this original state. And although there's, there's so much uh, dysfunctionality in the region at the moment, um, you know, let's maybe look at uh, what gives them, um, you know, some common uh, backdrop and uh, maybe try to look to celebrate that a bit more. Um, however, listen, this is not a political um, publication. It's not meant to be that way. So I don't want to express any kind of opinion. Of course, um, I know it's a very emotive subject at the moment, but it's still a pleasure to be able to talk about the history of that area. The Ancient World Cup. Moving on, it's time to go back to the Ancient World Cup. And uh, those of you who have been following this will maybe be as equally fascinated by me on how this all turns out. But this week was the third match of the round of 32. And uh, it pitted the Britons up against the Mochi. So we had the uh, ancient culture of Great Britain against uh, a very ancient culture of Peru. And uh, let's see how you voted. So, of course, obviously, we post uh, the polls uh, on many of the social media pages. We At the moment, it's going out on the Facebook group. The, the Facebook fan group, the fan page, which is like the unofficial uh, History of the World um, podcast of uh, unofficial Facebook fan group, uh, which has been uh, started up by Jenna Osborne. Um, it's on the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages page, which is um, a, a page that has been created by a very good friend of the podcast, Nick Barksdale. Um, it's also on the Twitter account, so you can vote on the Twitter account, on the Tapper Talk discussion forum, which is like a, a discussion forum for anything related to history that is hosted by the History of the World podcast. 
and uh, we compile all of the votes that have been gathered on all of those forums and, and come up with a, uh, a final result. So this week's uh, final result between the Britons and the Mochi, um, it's an overwhelming win with 79% of the votes for the Britons. So we say goodbye to the Mochi. Uh, the Britons will go through to the next round. And uh, to those of you who are following the cultures of the Americas, don't worry, we've still got uh, a couple of the cultures remaining. We've got the Teotihuacanos of Mexico and the Olmecs of um, of sort of southern Mexico, uh, Guatemala, that that area. So um, we've um, we've still got them in the competition, and uh, it'll be a number of weeks before we get in, round to them because they're in the second half of the draw. And we're still in the first half of the draw at the moment. And uh, next week we'll be finding out who the Britons will play in round three. And it's a, it's a cracker. The next match is a cracker. Match number four will be the Franks against the Picts. And, uh, of course, um, we will be um, publishing those uh, this week uh, for you to start voting. So the Franks versus the Picts uh, for a place against the Britons in round three. Listener messages and reviews. Well, firstly... Can I apologise for publishing this episode late? I know a lot of you may not even notice that it's published late, but those of you who are used to the the podcast coming out at a certain time will notice that this week's is late. So I apologise for that. A few things um, held me up this weekend, and uh, but now here we are. We're, we're the episode's ready, and it's uh, you're listening to it now. So thank you very much for your patience. Um. Listener messages and reviews. Let's have a look. Uh, there is a review um, from Jimaginator on the uh, on the Apple Podcast forum. He's from the United States of America. He's put wonderful, absolutely the best history podcast. We waited a long time for someone to cover it all, and here it is. Love the topics and the objectivity. Very well researched and presented. Keep going, Chris. Uh, thank you. A very very kind um, review there. Thank you very much indeed. Very encouraging. Um, let's uh, read some of the emails out from uh, our lovely, um, our lovely uh, listeners. Uh, voting for the Ancient World Cup. This is from Lynn Dowling, who's a long-time friend of the podcast. She's put, hi, Chris, I'm writing in to say I'm still listening, still a loyal fan. You'd think by now perhaps the podcast would be wearing thin, but no, we are just getting to some really cool stuff, by the way. I'm reading a book by Arthur Herman, The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World, and was curious to hear how close your Viking episode dovetailed with his written work. I must say that I was very impressed by how succinctly you summarised everything I read in his book. I am keenly interested in your next podcast about the Rus, as it really pertains to the present strife in Ukraine. Anyway, I would like to vote in the Ancient World Cup, but I am recently converted Luddite, um, who no longer uses social media. I cannot find a place on your main website to vote. Well, I think the Tapper Talk discussion forum is probably the uh, the best place if you don't use media. So um, you can access that through the website, through the interact section. Um, anyway, so glad you are still plugging away diligently each week. This void I have had about history slowly being eradicated. The only downside is my poor husband has to tolerate me bragging about this or that fact every so often. I try to 
be good, but it's not always easy. Cheers from San Diego, Chris Lynn. And Lynn, Lynn just put a PS at the bottom saying, still holding out uh, hope for a hot world uh, Mediterranean cruise someday. Well, I think we're a long way from that, but who knows? Who knows what the future has in store? But a lovely message, Lynn. Thank you so much indeed. Next message this week uh, is from Baladitya Yelaparagada. Uh, and uh, who's put, hey Chris, your podcast is just fantastic, especially the first two seasons, which I've listened to a couple of times. Closer to when the episodes originally came out, your narrative style helped calm me down during some personally rough insomniac nights in grad school. Um, now, after having graduated, I realise they have given me a great foundation to study ancient civilizations from the Mediterranean Sea to the Indus Valley with re- with information. Uh, with informative re-listen value, sorry. Um, I feel compelled uh, or randomly compelled to thank you for making it easy to consume dozens of other podcasts while still making it worthwhile to come back to yours as well as uh, for being an antidepressant. Cheers from Berkeley. Well, thank you, uh, Baladitia, and it's a pleasure to receive a message from you. Um, And um, I'm really glad that um, you find the podcast uplifting. I think that's... Um, as important as anything I think is that you get a lot of pleasure from listening to it so really do appreciate your message and, and thank you very much and hope that you continue to enjoy the project um, Jake Lambrosa has written in and put uh, hello Chris just started listening and love your podcasts uh, smart clear well paced and well thought out tried several other history podcasts and found them uh, a rapid textbook reading that is not entertaining or interesting and at times confusing and boring I'm now listening to Volume 1, Episode 17 and about to board a six-hour cross-country flight and can't wait to tuck into the next few episodes. All in all, good show and keep up the good work. Um, Thank you, Jake. Um, Very kind message uh, indeed. I've received um, one or two messages through um, the Facebook um, pages. Uh, Shane Smith, who's also a long-time friend of the podcast, has written in saying, "Uh, Good morning, Chris. Hope... Uh, hope your life. Um, hope life is treating you well. How are you? Hope life is treating you well. Sorry, I'm I'm always misreading these messages. Um, so I just listened to your Viking episode. I feel like you did a pretty decent job, and I feel like you did something a lot of people do, and you made the the violent uh, same extraordinary uh, sound extraordinarily over the top for how the Vikings treated other people. This is a flaw I see sometimes when different uh, listening to different historical podcasts. People take our modern concept of violence in place and upon people of old, but in reality, if you look at other kingdoms in that time, the 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 um, the conquering and the warfare that happened between the nations, um, even on England's soil among Christians themselves, what the Vikings were doing were no different, but yet most people want to portray the Vikings as this bloodthirsty group of people. Uh, one of the other points is that when you're talking about the conversion of Christians, of Harold, his methods uh, was either conversion or death. And his form of execution was also so traumatic that it caused families to leave and go to Iceland to avoid conversion. Just a couple of different points of my view. I've, I'm listening to the mini Viking related podcasts, European podcasts, and it's such a uh, as it's a different kind of hit and miss on people's perspective. Uh, yeah, I did like uh, that you talked about uh, Leif Erikson, uh, Eric the Red, and their travelling, especially to the the Americas. Everybody wants to get Columbus and the recognition. Um, 
for discovering America, but actually the Vikings were here first. Anyway, I appreciate what you're doing. As always, I look forward to the next episode and we'll talk to you later. Well, thank you, Shane. I This is one of my favourite probably messages of the week, I, I would imagine. It's this big question about how we portray the Vikings. Um, the fact that they are this bloodthirsty group of peoples. And, and I often cite, and I hope this did come across in the episode, that I cited what I felt were my reasons why the Vikings are portrayed as such. And it's really just mainly because a lot of the writings about the Vikings are written by Christians and uh, Christian monasteries and, and Christianized monarchs of Scandinavian lands from a later time. So, And they, they reflect on the Vikings as bloodthirsty, savage pagans and they want to portray them as being mindless, um, violent peoples. And, uh, and it's and it's probably more accurate, Shane, in what you say, in that they uh, probably were a lot more cultured than uh, history gives them credit for. And there's a fact that there's like a, a desire by people to stylize the Vikings as bloodthirsty um, individuals in order to glorify them, in order to make them sound more exciting. And, and we see this with um, com like completely different subjects in history, such as uh, Queen Cleopatra, she's portrayed a certain way that, like, when you read about history, you may think, well, actually, I don't necessarily think she was like that, and that we maybe judge her by modern values. So I think you bring up an extremely valid and interesting point, Shane, and I'm, I'm, I'm intensely fascinated by what the listeners of the History of the World podcast think about the portrayal of the Vikings as this bloodthirsty group of savages is. Are we being unfair to them? Are we being unrealistic? Um, we got a uh, another message. I'll just read that one out. It's from Danielle Sostensen, um, who has written in, and uh, you'll have to forgive a, a few of my pronunciation difficulties here. He's written in and said, uh, Hi, long-time listener, first time sending you messages. Um, the Icelandic word for Kiev is kynagardish. Kaina is a word for a boat in Icelandic and garda is a word for a garden or a yard. So the Icelandic word for Kiev could be translated back to English as boatyard. Uh, love your podcast, by the way, and have listened to all the episodes. Keep up the good work and look forward to listening to future episodes. Uh, Danielle from Garda, Iceland. Um, this is interesting because the one thing that... Um, I spotted from my studies that was the runic references to uh, Gardariki, um, which um, also has that garden word, that Nordic or Norse garden word um, in it. And it, um, we think that it um, may be a direct reference to the Rose state. Um, so there's a little link there, but fascinating to look at these things and and by discussing it with um native speakers as well like you will have a a deeper understanding of your language that um helps me to maybe understand um certain things and facts and and suppositions that maybe i wouldn't have any natural appreciation for with my sort of lack of knowledge so um thank you so much for writing in Anyway, um, I'm going to wrap up this week um, because if we've crammed a lot in. Next week um, is going to be a republication 
of an old episode. So we're gonna, now we're on this um, sort of Viking theme. We're going to republish the episode of Snorri Stotlesson, um in a place where it actually belongs in the entire narrative of the History of the World podcast. St- the the profile of Snorri Stotlesson originally started out as a, a requested episode um, uh, for the History of the World Illuminati um, members who accrue a certain amount of uh, donations are able to commission such episodes. And uh, this one was commissioned um, by uh, Shane Smith, who we heard from earlier in the episode. So we're going to republish his episode. Um, And then going forward, there are going to be other episodes um, that have been commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati members. Um, Eric Young um, is looking forward to his episode on medieval weaponry, which um, I've I've shifted um, I've shifted uh, forward in the schedule. In actual fact, so I've had a little bit of a rearrangement on what I uh, wanted to publish, and I think Eric's episode is now going to be episode twenty nine. Uh, we were also um, planning an episode for um, another Illuminati member called Nick uh, Kabalafkas, who has um, commissioned an episode on the Khoisan people of Africa, the ancient cultures of the Khoisan. Um, so that's also going to be um, sometime later this year. Um, but uh, yeah, if you're interested in getting your own episode commissioned, then by all means go along to the History of the World podcast website click on the patreon link and sign up to make monthly contributions you can then accrue the relevant amount to uh, commission your own episode which i will write and broadcast for you um happy to do that um always enjoy studying these special episodes and um when you become uh, when whenever you sign up to make a, a monthly contribution you you know you can qualify for other rewards as well and uh, we also welcome you into the history of the world podcast Illuminati. This week we welcome in Sean Ryder and Nancy Jones who are new members to the uh, History of the World podcast Illuminati. Welcome to the family. Anyway that's it for this week. Uh, as I say next week Snorri Stotlison before we move on to the British Isles and the Viking impact on the on the British Isles we'll focus on some of the uh, key battles of that period um, and then also uh, we'll move into the Normans who also find their Roots in Viking uh, travels and travellers, and um, their uh, impact on the British Isles as well. So, plenty to look forward to. Um, but next week, we'll look forward to Snorri Stotlis and the, the retelling of the story. Until then, please be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.